All right. Uh, let's see. Um, Matthew C. Graham asks on Twitter, uh, what are my dietary recommendations when one is sick? And that's really, that, that's so specific to the individual. Um, it depends on what you're sick with, what your palate is like. I mean, for me and what I recommend for most people that usually works is, it, you know, if you can, and especially if you have somebody around, um, what I would do is throw in a bunch of really lean meat uh, into a crock pot with some wine. Yes, red wine, uh, usually a cab. Um, and, you know, actually a, a little bit of vinegar. I throw into it some salt, maybe some spices. I don't worry about vegetables. And, you know, I let that cook all day. And I usually make enough that whenever I'm hungry, even if I'm vomiting with nausea, you know, I can go in and get a little bit of that. And a little bit of that continuously uh, really helps uh, with my vomiting and, and nausea when that occurs. You know, I, d I don't get those problems too often, so I haven't had to do that in a long time. Uh, but it usually works very well. Uh, you're getting mostly protein. Uh, you know, your immune system is highly active at that point, and, you know, it takes a lot of proteins to fully activate the immune system. It, like, it, all of its antibodies and everything that it's creating are, it's creating from protein. So, it's good to get some source of protein. I don't worry about anything else. You know, I'm, I'm sick. I just try to worry about getting enough rest and not exhausting myself. Uh, and uh, Matthew C. Graham also asked, what are my thoughts on Bang and Rain energy drinks? I'm, I'm not familiar with the Rain energy drinks, uh, but Bang, I used to love those things. I'm not, as long as an energy drink is sugar-free, and, and this is the important part, if it's sugar-free and you're on or drinking them during a very, very, very low carbohydrate period, they're completely fine. There's nothing to worry about. And that's partly because the artificial sweeteners that are in them independently don't raise insulin levels. Uh, it's very rare. What they do do, uh, and, and of course, if you're extremely obese, uh, you, you do have a Pavlovian response to anything sweet where anything sweet will raise your insulin levels. Um, and that will subside over time. But it's, it's not a critical issue. Actually, insulin in general is not a critical issue. And I talk about that in the new book. Um, but as far as energy drinks, if you're not eating carbs, they're totally fine if they're sugar-free. If you're in a carb regime of the day, so if you're carb backloading and it's nighttime, or if it's the weekend and it's a carb night, you know, caffeine's not... Well, energy drinks aren't a very good idea because of the artificial sweeteners and the caffeine. Um, the artificial sweeteners actually enhance insulin release if you have glucose in the system. Uh, so you get big insulin spikes. That's one reason diet soda studies actually show pretty negative results because they don't change the diet to compensate for the sweeteners that are going in. So people are getting these huge insulin responses even though it is a calorie-free energy drink. They're getting a worse response from the meals that they're eating those drinks with. So it's not the energy drinks and it's not the sweetener. 
And as with most things in the health world, it's the combination with being on a carbohydrate-based diet. That's the problem. Um, so I don't, as long as an energy drink is sugar-free, I, I don't really worry about it. Uh, Kevin Williams asks, uh, do I feel like intra-workout nutrition is a canard? I still do uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, the, the one time it, it can become important and this, this is hard to judge, and I don't, I, I realize some people's training regimes they don't have control over, so they might work out for several hours at a time in one period. And where intra-workout nutrition becomes important is after, say, for a lot of people, it's going to be after the one two-hour two training mark. Once your glycogen levels become sufficiently depleted, this is when you start going into an overtraining state. Now, the one problem is for muscular growth, if your goal is muscular growth, once you wipe out glycogen reserves, ingesting more carbohydrates and burning those carbohydrates is not giving the same anabolic response as mobilizing glycogen stores. Uh, it turns out glycogen storage is at the center of high performance, strength gain, muscle gain, um, everything, e even endurance events to a certain level, although during training, uh, glycogen levels aren't as important. So that's the key. So intra-workout nutrition as far as proteins and those kind of things, uh, those are basically canard. And in, in the new material, what I'll show is that your protein synthesis and actually the substantial amount of breakdown doesn't occur until training ends. So while you're training, that intra-workout nutrition, if it's protein-based or amino acids or whatever, it's really doing nothing. And if you're ingesting carbohydrates at the beginning of your workout, you're actually slowing your anabolic potential. So th this is really important to consider in the intra-workout nutrition idea. I, like, I, I, it's based on just assumptions without people doing the research. When you go through and you accumulate, I, I accumulated some 50, 60 some odd studies, looked at all of their data and fit curves to those data and also made predictions because the curves that you could normally fit to the data that was available didn't make biological sense. So I fit curves that made biological sense, which made some predictions. And actually recently, a couple years ago, my when I first came up with those equations, um, one set of researchers were able to fill in the missing data gap and it fit my curve. And so I was, you know, I was right on the money theoretically. And it turns out your peak breakdown muscle breakdown period occurs roughly depends on training state but roughly four hours after the workout ends it doesn't matter how long your workout is and the peak synthesis occurs about an hour after that and that's very consistent across the two curves if you look at breakdown curves and synthesis curves so really what you need to be doing is eating immediately post-workout for maximum amino acid availability, you know, four hours or so after you train. Now, it's a really complex question on how to uh, 
eat and adjust in, in in that regime to make sure you're always covered for those peak synthesis rates. There are t- ways to do it without constantly have, like chugging protein shakes or things like that. Um, it, but it is somewhat complex, hence the reason I designed an entire software system to take care of those kind of things. Um, but so the, the intra-workout nutrition, especially protein, amino acids, it's it's just a it's a canard it's a marketing tool and um, yeah there's no need for it Mm, let's see Um, Kevin Williams and probably other people ask are asking about a full release date for body AI I addressed that in an email if you're a if you're a body AI subscriber so check that out uh, people are also, like Kevin Williams is also asking very specific questions about calories and protein. Uh, again, I, I like, I don't want to go through and calculate this for people. You know, this isn't a personal training session. Um, but if you're 188, like a rule of thumb, and once you're in the software, you'll actually see this rule, rule of thumb thrown out the window, but that's because it can do accurate calculations and predictions. But a rule of thumb is whatever your body weight is, eat that plus, I don't, man, I don't even remember anymore. I've been working with the, the differential equations for so long. Uh, it's like your body weight plus in grams plus 50%. Is that right? Man, I, I'd have to go back or, you know, uh, no, I think it's just like your body weight in grams. Yeah, that sounds right. Go for that. Uh, calories, uh, again, uh, there's so much information I need to answer that question. I just can't anyway. Uh, Kevin Williams again with high doses of creatine. Um, high, dice, high doses of creatine are still good but you distribute them throughout the day uh, it keeps your cellular machinery working better uh, it, it's never a bad idea and that's like systemic machinery cellular machinery so this is going to cover your brain your organ tissues and actually it can serve a really important role in health performance and disease prevention so uh, is it better to keep keep strength training like shorter um in general the the hard gainer question it is hard to answer because there's actually several reasons you could be a hard gainer and some of those relate to what you're eating and exercise was like when you were younger um so you can work out up to an hour two hours you know it's really not going to matter as long as it's once you blow past your glycogen reserves that's when you hit the point of overtraining or you blow past the ability of glycogen reserves to meet the rate of burning that you're trying to achieve and actually we see this in crossfit Um, crossfit's a good example and it's a good example why there's differences between men and women men pretty much if you are below 50 anytime you do physical activity you start using glycogen stores i mean it's almost this like linear curve the more intense you get the more more glycogen you use up so we're always using our glycogen reserves when we exercise as men women on the other hand 
they have to get really high intensities before their body starts mobilizing glycogen reserves. And this, this actually explains a lot of discrepancies across a lot of dietary protocols and why they fail uh, for women but work well for men or vice versa. In, in training as well, you'll notice female CrossFit trainers, usually like they'll lose body fat, they'll gain a pretty good amount of muscle, and they'll, they'll start to get really good performance. And it's because CrossFit specifically is putting them in that really high-level respiratory regime, regime where they're using their glycogen stores. That's what's triggering their – that's what is allowing them to increase their athletic performance. Men, on the other hand, they're blowing through those way too fast, so they quickly get into a regime where they're overtraining and the body compensates by then slowing down protein accumulation while increasing protein breakdown. It's interesting, the breakdown curves really don't seem to be affected by much, but the compensatory synthesis curves are affected by a lot. So if if you're training in that way, your synthesis curves are going to go down. Now, I know I'll get some blowback uh, from this because they're like uh, people give examples of CrossFitters, but I will, I mean, I would stake just about anything on a bet that if you check the male CrossFit individuals who are doing really well, either they were really fat when they started, so, so they did have extra compensatory glycogen stores uh, because of their extra lean, lean body tissue, even though they're, they're, they're more obese, they have more lean tissue, which means more glycogen storage availability, or they're on some sort of anabolic agent. And like, I know this firsthand from several top CrossFit teams. Um, and, and from my point of view, I am not anti performance enhancing drugs. Um, I am anti uh, the fraudulent portrayal of, oh, well, I just do this exercise and nothing else, and when in fact they might be on performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, that's one of the bad things about them being just flat-out illegal and criminalized at the same level as, I, I believe, cocaine or crack. I don't remember which one. Um, and also where I am opposed is the fact that because they're illegal, people can't get the medical and technical counseling that they need. There's so many myths and bro knowledge surrounding steroid use. It's ridiculous. So in CrossFit, that's where we see the differences. Um, and it, it all centers around how the body uses glycogen and that applies to your resistance training too. It'll reply to apply to hard gainers and everybody else. So I spent a long, long time on that question. Uh, let's see. And, and to, to be clear, if, especially if you're under 50, your testosterone response during the workout actually doesn't really correlate that much. You'd be surprised. What it does correlate with is testosterone levels go up. Glycogen levels, at, you have higher access to glycogen levels. Uh, so men blow through them faster. And again, women have low lower testosterone levels so they don't have full access to their glycogen reserves at low intensities Um, these are very important and actually for women that's an an important topic on birth control choice because if you're on an estrogen based birth control that actually even lowers your ability to use glycogen levels which means a couple consequences is performance gains are tougher and 
you have a greater propensity to gain body fat because the glycogen stores are always full and hard to access. If you're on a birth control, you want to be on a progesterone-based birth control. That has minimal effect on females when it comes to accessing their glycogen levels. Um, so it's a much better option. Uh, let's see. Tim Prince is asking, asks about nootropics. Are they worth taking? Um, you know, it. I'm always interested in any type of enhancement, mental enhancement. For my own mental enha enhancement, I actually, my version of Sudoku is I work integrals or integral problems that, or some kind of math problem that nobody's solved yet. Um, which what that does is it forces my brain to keep trying to come up with creative ways to solve the problem. Um, I've been successful a few times, surprisingly, because of body AI, problems that I had to solve. Um, so body AI will actually result in some technical papers because of that. Um, but that's what I use primarily to keep my brain super functional. Uh, I have used racetams in the past. I've experimented with those. Uh, I, I found them the science behind them really interesting. And the toxicity potential behind them is very low. Uh, so I did experiment with those and I found they they worked the it was amazing what I found to be most prominent was my continuous memory recording which you don't realize this my access to it was way enhanced so during the day uh, as you're out and about your brain's actually recording tons and tons of information and you are as you get older you get better and better at filtering out what's important and this is the phenomenon that researchers have talked about psychologically that time seems to be to run faster the older you get and this is because as children, the brain's not as good as f at filtering. So the children remember more instances throughout their day. So their day seems longer. And as you get older, your brain's filtering out more information. So you can't remember the specific periods as much. And because that, that's seen as noise. And at that, at that point, the day seems shorter because you can't, you can't access all of that memory from the day. And this is also important during sleep, and especially on carb-based diets. A lot of these topics I, I hit in my, my new book. But when you sleep, the brain is cleaning up all of, that no, all of that excess information that was deemed unimportant. So if through the day, as you're going through the day and you're not consciously trying to access that really fine-tuned time period data, the brain realizes it's junk and it clears it out at night that's why sleep's very important and that's why after you know even just 24 hours but 48 hours without sleep your ability to remember things goes to crap and it's really just because your your body hasn't had a chance to clear out all of the things that aren't important um so on racetams my days seemed amazingly long because not only did i seem to be remembering everything through the day i had tremendous access to it uh, so my days seemed much much longer uh, as far as my mental capacity or my ability to focus that didn't seem too different um, and but 
you know, I, I do keep in mind that, I, that that's contrary to other people's reports. Uh, I know my brain is wired differently than other people's, which means it, it has a different chemical milieu, so that could have something to do with it. Um, other nootropics, uh, Vivance is a newer nootropic that actually, I, you know, I think has a lot of promise in some respects. I would want to be very careful about how I recommended it, but that one... If I need laser focus beyond my capacity, which is, you know, pretty, pretty extreme to begin with, like Vivance is like spot on. I don't get shaky from it. There's no high feeling. It's just all of a sudden you can focus for as long as you want. Um, Modafinil is another one that can, you know, it, it's uh, nootropic in the sense of like it's really good if you have some sleep deprivation. I've, I've used that in the past. I've experimented with that in the past as well. Um, it, it's something actually I always like to keep around um, just because sometimes I get stuck in scenarios where my mind is so intensely focused on a problem. It, it, it triggers substantial. I, I, I don't really call it insomnia. Um, but I'll stay awake for much longer periods and get much less sleep than normal. And then on a day where I'm prepared to sleep, if I can't, modafinil is an easy way for me to function for meetings or something like that. Um, but I use it very sparingly. I know some people who use it daily. Um, I'm, I'm not confident on what... On any of these nootropics, uh, what the day-to-day consequences are. Uh, natural no- nootropics, uh, you know, they're hit or miss. Uh, even even nicotine and racetams, you know, the the effect I got from those only lasted about a week or two, and then no matter what, like taking racetams after that, like did absolutely nothing. Uh, so I stopped using them. Uh, for brain health, though, like some amount of MCT plus DHA, uh, docosahexaenoic acid, you know, one of the omega-3 fatty acids, that's really important. M- MCT can help to increase levels of DHA absorption into the brain, which is really important for cognitive function because one of the re- one reason a healthy brain loses cognitive function over time is a loss of DHA in the frontal lobes of the brain. And, you know, they've shown in humans and in dogs, if you supplement with some MCT and DHA, you can keep that level high throughout life. So you would not experience normal mental fatigue. And I I have a hard time assessing, but I feel like my cognitive abilities are as good or better than they were in graduate school. And I'm twice the age I was then. Um, so, you know, that's completely subjective, take it as you will. Um, but I don't feel like my mental capacities have been degraded at all by time. Uh, but I also take measures to, to try to mitigate any normal aging effects. Um, something about, oh, let's see. Uh, George Coles asking about uh, struggle to gain weight, whether this is whether that is fat or muscle is eating carbs most nights more suitable or sticking with carbonate. If, if you're straining to, if you're struggling to gain weight, I would suggest being on carb backloading. Um, 
you know, delaying breakfast, that, that's optional. People, people really mess, misread into all of my hurryings about breakfast. And unfortunately, that was around the time of the intermittent fasting craze. And so people got this idea that I was saying, like, skip breakfast. Like, no, it's the least important meal of the day. If you're going to skip a meal, skipping breakfast is, is totally fine. That doesn't mean you should skip breakfast. If you have training goals or if you have goals to gain muscular weight, you're probably going to have to eat breakfast. I mean, you look at, go to any intermittent faster, like you can find any, that don't start eating till noon or later. They don't have substantial amounts of muscle mass, and there's a reason for that. Uh, it, and it's because they're not able to sufficiently meet the protein needs or glycogen needs during workouts. You know, remember, you've got to fill up your glycogen levels before you work out. Like you can't just try to eat and work out and hope that that's going to get the same results. It will not. So if you're struggling to gain weight, like don't, don't be skipping breakfast. You know, it, it, it's a very important point. Breakfast is not a critical meal of the day, but if you're trying, if you have some athletic goals, particularly gaining weight, then breakfast may be a critical part of your ability to get enough nutrients. So don't don't misunderstand those two statements. Like you know, it, it's an important point. Uh, whereas intermittent fasters, like oh well, don't eat breakfast. At, like they have no significant reason to make that claim or that suggestion if you're overweight sure go ahead skip breakfast it it's it's not going to hurt you and it could possibly help you that's fine but this isn't a you need to skip breakfast i've never said that i will never say that uh i think in general that's an asinine statement should you skip carbs for breakfast absolutely that one is an absolute statement um so that's all i'm gonna say on that um, my, uh, Tim Prince, he's always asking about supplements and testing and, uh, you know, third party testing is expensive and I run a superhuman was a very small supplement company. If I restart it, I'm also going to be in a very small supplement company scenario. And the manufacturer, when we were ordering like, Galacto oligosaccharides is a very good example. When I was trying to get that for Gut Shield, all he he actually didn't deal with that. So he contacted a lot of other large-scale probiotic and prebiotic manufacturers and asked their sources. And these are huge brand names that you would know. I mean, the biggest brand names. And and they're like, well, you know, they gave the Chinese contacts. So, of course, they ordered a small batch from China and they tested it and found out it was fructo oligosaccharides. It had absolutely no GOS in it at all. So he tried several other suppliers. Again, it came back as purely fructo oligosaccharides. It, was, it had no GOS in it at all. And we finally found a manufacturer in Canada that, that truly delivered galacto oligosaccharides. It tested correctly. Um, and the manufacturer took on that cost. Now, if I had taken on that cost, Gut Shield would have cost like a thousand dollars a kit. I, I just honestly could not afford that type of continuous testing. When I get, when I would get bigger, I would absolutely make sure that every batch 
is spot checked. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'll just be honest. I'm a small operation. Um, and if in your opinion, that means I shouldn't start a supplement company, I completely support your decision in that arena. I never, I mean, you can look at my website, podcasts, anything. I very rarely, if ever do hard sales, like never. If you don't want to buy my products, don't buy them. That's totally fine with me. If you don't want to buy them because I can't afford to do the spot testing on every batch that comes out, I understand. I get it. But I also try to work with manufacturers that I will stand behind. And, you know, that's the critical point for me. If I have confidence in what they're doing and the manufacturer gave me a massive amount of confidence with giving us a list of who they ordered from and the test results from each of those manufacturers because they they were hoping that I would just hedge and say, okay, well, we'll just put in fructo oligosaccharides instead because I was costing them money at that point because uh, there was no guarantee they could find galacto oligosaccharides. Um, so if your decision is based on like, I can't spot test every batch, like I get it. Don't purchase from me. Like super simple solution. Um, you know, I, I, and I don't know what else to say. So, and, and this is specifically to Tim Prince because I've probably had at least a hundred emails, tweets, everything. And you know, he, Tim, he's not being a jerk about it. Like I understand his concerns, but I got to tell you, Tim, Asking me, like, basically every other week, like, it, it's not going to change anything. It, it's just not going to happen. And the situation with Superhuman now, anyway, is it, it's so ridiculously bad. Like, I can't verify anything with them anymore. You know, I was able to do one last verification on things. Um, the, the management's totally incompetent. Uh, they totally oversold what their capabilities were. Uh, they're extremely lazy, which obviously exacerbated their their incompetence um and i also know they're very unscrupulous when it comes to money uh you know so all those things put together that i've learned over the years like i it made me absolutely lose all confidence in superhuman to fulfill any obligation they're already not fulfilling their obligations to me because of a cash grab which makes me assume that there's a good chance they will not fulfill their obligations to the customers. And especially because they are not the face of the company and that's kind of what they're betting on. And they didn't bet on me blowing the whistle either. Uh, so, so there you go. Those are superhuman and supplement questions. Uh, I do have a new supplement company name. I'm not going to say what it is though yet. Um, Let's see. Uh, George Coles asks about beef being highest insulin response. Is it the best protein to consume post-workout? It's actually an extremely good protein to consume post-workout because beef in general, its absorption curve goes amazingly well to follow the max synthesis curve after working out. Um, there are a lot of complexities around this, so don't take this as some final word, but it, it does match protein synthesis curve very well. With that being said, there are still advantages to taking a post-workout shake that absorbs very quickly. So me saying that beef is a good post-workout meal does not preclude or exclude 
the usefulness of a post-workout shake. And these are things that I'll be explaining. I'm releasing two books this year. One is the basis for everything, health, performance, whatever. You'd have to read it to understand, but the second book is geared strictly to performance, and it will explain all these niceties so that people know what's going on in the body. And like I said, it's important to note that insulin response is, it turns out not to be very important. It's the glucose well, and fructose available to the body. It's a very important distinction. And luckily, there's a lot of criticism I had over my previous works that made me really dig into that, dig out all the data, run correlation simulations and statistics to see that it doesn't correlate at all. It is your glucose and fructose consumption. And interestingly, it's glucose consumption and glucose and fructose consumption because fructose alone has has different effects. Uh, but it, it's hard to find just pure fructose sources unless you go out and hunt for them. Um, cold therapy beneficial. This is also from George Coles. Uh, I started a series on that, and then I tore my quadricep muscle. So that pretty much put a hold on everything I did, and I want to get back to that series because... And with that, uh, there's an article, a few articles about DNP, uh, dinitrophenyl use and what it does in the body. And they all actually tie together. And cold therapy, I, I mean, at this point, I still consider it garbage. Um, you know, there's so many counterexamples. For, for one, in athletics, if you're doing cold therapy especially after training sessions, it turns out it decreases your performance in every way you want to measure performance. Um, it's kind of, kind of stupid. Uh, in humans, cold therapy, sure, it activates some genes. We have no idea what those long-term consequences are. Um, for example, you can lose body fat pretty easily. And you can do it just by cutting calories way, way down. And you can do it on, on, with eating carbohydrates. You could cut out all fat low protein, eat carbohydrates, and lose significant amount of weight. Uh, the problem is, even though you lost the weight, you actually caused a lot of cellular damage in that process. That's why people usually get more fat after traditional weight loss diets because those weight loss diets include a lot of carbohydrates. So they made themselves more sick while they lost weight. And then when it was over, when they could no longer maintain the diet, they gained as much fat as paralleled their new disease state. That's why people get fatter after those diets. The, the, the body is actually just going up to the point of their current disease state. So it shows they got sicker. Um, now, cold therapy activates a lot of genes. It can activate some brown fat. Um, but I, I'm not sure what the consequences of those are. You know, so if you're doing cold therapy, what you're actually doing is pushing, you're increasing the energy flux through cells. Now, in, in brown fat, that's fine because the energy flux there usually comes from fatty acids, which is fine. But your, your muscles are also actually trying to burn through more energy reserves, as are your internal organs are trying to keep you warm. And if you have glucose in your system, you're increasing the glucose flux through the mitochondria colony. 
and that actually causes more damage. Uh, so what you might see in short-term benefits might be causing long-term degradation. And there's many other factors that matter. So just take, I, I notice people who like to suggest cold, cold therapy, it fixes everything. And, um, you know, they're like, oh, you know, this is the future, whatever. Those are the people, like ketogenic activists, like try to ignore populations that don't fit their, their model. Well, a cold therapy group also ignores groups that don't fit their model. And what about Inuits or people living in extremely cold, immersive environments for most of the year uh, that were on essentially ketogenic diets? And the idea is, well, they got introduced to Western foods and they started eating a lot of junk and got sick. That's not the case. They got introduced to carbohydrates, many of which were just grains, complex grains, and they weren't just hoarding on that stuff you know their their calorie loads it turns out really aren't that different what the major shift was was shifting away from high you know ketogenic type diet because they had mostly animal products to animal products plus uh substantial carbohydrates at this point and so if cold immersion is so miraculous why are those why are northern populations and people in those areas not getting massive benefit from the cold immersion like they should be disease free they should be lean and that's just not the case um so so i have serious doubts about its efficacy in humans over time or that it has any significance meaning whatsoever um you know and, and i could i could be wrong but at the molecular level at the mitochondrial level and as you scale up through all the consequences, I can see no long-term benefit and potential long-term deficit from cold therapy. Um, you've you've got to have the right diet on top of it. And most cold therapy people are not recommending the correct diet on top of it. They still recommend carbohydrates, which means you could be increasing damage. Um, so uh, cold therapy, let's see. Uh, Tim Prince asked, is asking about cybersecurity. He's had his, his credit card hacked a few times. Um, and he, he's asking, like, I went way overboard a couple years ago with cybersecurity and, um, and just actually cell phone security and everything. I, I built a stealth phone, uh, so I have a phone that's, that's actually incredibly difficult to track, even... Even uh, government agencies would have difficulties uh, with it. Uh, although I, I do do some things that would make it easier for them, I admit. Um, but in theory, the phone is built to, to be stealth. Um, unfortunately, I don't do everything I should do to ensure that, that level of stealth. Um, but I also became concerned because my first trip to Serbia, which was four or five years ago, I actually had my, somebody tried to steal my identity. They applied for a credit card in my name and uh, they had broken into my mailbox at, the, at my apartment in California. And they were, they were trying to steal, they were, they were waiting for the credit card to come back to, to steal that credit card. And uh, luckily I caught it and I, I caught it because just I had signed up for Credit Karma at some point and they gave me an email alert that I had a new credit card in my name. 
And to be honest, that's one of the best ways you can try to avoid credit card fraud online is to uh, join Credit Karma. It's like free and they do a really good job. Anything that shows up in your credit report, uh, you immediately get an email about. And if anybody tries to do anything with your using your information in a really heinous way that could screw you over, then that you'll get an alert for that. For credit card purchases, uh, an easy thing to do and what I do is Bank of America, I'm sure other other companies have this um, technology. Uh, but when I, I used to have a Bank of America card, for online purchases, they have this great thing. You can go in and you can generate a temporary credit card number that links to your card. So for whatever purchase you're making, you can use that temporary card. It can never be charged again. And you can create one for recurring transactions as well. Uh, so it can only be charged a certain amount once a month or once every six months whatever, or once a year, whatever you set it at. And you're pretty much completely protected at that point. I have had no incursions whatsoever since I started using those tools. Um, and, and that's what I would recommend. Those are kind of your easiest ways. Um, Credit Karma and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not making any money from these recommendations. I'm just telling you what works. If I was making money, I'd have links to those things. Um, coaching, George Coles asked about the coaching certification for Body AI. Will it be uh, available soon? Like I am busting my ass <laughs> on everything, so it will be done as soon as possible. As soon as I can get Body AI out the door and my book's finished, that gives me revenue source once again to start to speed up everything else. So. I'm just busting my ass. If you want to help with the process or you want to speed it up, you know, I highly recommend if you can recommending my books to your friends. I mean, that's the best thing because then I I'm uh, I'm compensated for the work that I'm doing and they're getting something out of it. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm just I'm not much of a salesy person. Uh, people have recommended that I set up Patreon accounts or whatever and. I might consider that in the future, but yeah, I'm, I'm busting my ass. I want to get that coaching certification as soon as possible because I think that's the best way to help the most people and not only help the people using the software, but also to help people spread this new technology that will hopefully uh, dismantle this manufacturing of disease that's going on in our society right now. So as soon as I can get it. Uh, this I'm hoping will be a good year to compensate for the worst year of my life, which was 2019. Uh, let's see. Is homemade rice pudding good for a good carb acclimating food? Sure. I, uh, man, I still love rice pudding. It's not so easy to find in Serbia, but it's fantastic. Um, Maurice Daher, if, if I pronounce anybody's name incorrectly, I probably, I apologize. He, my thoughts on carnivore diet, strict eating. Um, it, it depends on your goals. It always depends. If you're just, if you're not athletically inclined or, or if you're not athletically oriented or your goal is endurance, I can see arguments for a strict carnivore diet. 
if your goal is strength, uh, agility, response time, muscle growth, basically anything else other than you know strict fat fat loss or high endurance, you have to be eating carbs. Right? That's just all there is to it. You're not going to get the performance. Most people promoting the carnivore diet at this time got to their physique a completely different way. And now that they're there, they're trying to maintain it on a carnivore diet, which is, it's possible. So it really depends on your, well, it's possible to a degree. Um, you, you could start losing muscle mass on too strict of a carnivore diet for too long once you've reached kind of those higher level goals of performance for yourself. So I, you know, I, part of me can't, like I can't support the carnivore diet just because it's not really based on any type of scientific ideology. And I, that it's kind of a weird part of my book that I feel like I have to put out, put in there is describing what science really is. Uh, a lot of these people, there's even a website, I think it's called like science is stronger or something like that. And that doesn't mean you go look through the research journals and report on it and then extrapolate those results to recommendations. That's not science. Um, it is a component of science, and it's an important component. And, and I'm, not, I'm not denigrating that, that behavior. You know, it's, it, it's useful behavior. It, 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 is, it is a part of science. But it's not scientific in the fact of what I try to do is I try to say, okay, here's everything we know about the body. And that is a massive amount of knowledge. And that's why most of these diet theories that people promote only cover very limited ideas. Even people, even um, there's the NASA engineer that has metabolic priority. I, that's just a stupid term. Like, what does that even mean? Of course, metabolic priority. We know if you've got high insulin levels in the system and carbs, Carbs are the metabolic priority. If you have no carbs in the system, then fat becomes the metabolic priority because there's nothing else for the body to burn. Um, It's kind of a stupid concept, and they're using it very specifically to just, and he's using it to justify intermittent fasting on top of, well, cold therapy for some reason, on top of eating a lot of vegetables and eating very few calories. That's ad hoc theory building. Like you, you were looking at some goal, you helped an obese person lose weight and he helped a celebrity obese person, which is the only reason anybody knows who he is. Um, and you're like, okay, well, I need, I need a reason why that worked. And they just build a reason. That's not really science. Once you build a reason, you need to say, okay, well, let's look at something way outside of what I'm trying to target. Does this apply to that scenario? And the answer is no. Like, there's no connection. So that that's not really science. That's that's postulating. It's it's not even hypothesizing. It's just postulating, and and that's like a terminal point for these people. Um, that's why my you know if you've been around for years, you know my stuff is evolving, and it has to, it it has to because that's how science works. We can't answer all questions all the time. Um. So that's a little rant on carnivore and other types of diets. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, you should if you're if you're trying to gain muscle, 
or you're trying to maintain extreme levels of muscle, your carb intake needs to be matched to that. Uh, and I, I can't give you specifics. That's what the software is for, Body AI. Uh, it's designed for those specifics. But the carnivore diet is, I mean, a marketing gimmick. Let's just say, let's just call it what it is. Um, more nootropic questions. Uh, Omega-3 fatty acid, flaxseed. So this is a question from George Coles. Uh, what are good sources of omega-3? Flaxseeds or better supplements? Uh, I wouldn't take flax at all for omega-3 supplementation. It turns out even if you're taking a massive amount of flax oil, you're still omega-3 deficient. Um, it doesn't convert into the DHA and EPA that's needed by the body. Uh, other enzymes swamp that out. And they've done studies actually on veg vegetarians and vegans looking at plant sources of omega acids. And all of the individuals were deficient in omega-3 fatty acids, even though their dietary intake was higher, much higher than normal. Um, and the important one out of them, so eating fish, uh, taking fish oil, there's krill oil, those those absorb very well. There's a lot of research on their absorption and their incorporation, at least in mammal models. It's, it's always hard to say with humans because you can't just pull somebody's brain out and take a look. But really, I believe there's um, there's some sort of algae source of DHA. It's often it's often called DHA Gold is one of its um, kind of generic brand names. Uh, DHA is the one that I, I really try to focus on getting enough of. Uh, I don't worry about EPA so much and I would never, never use flax oil um, because even people who use high amounts of it and have high dietary levels of omega-3 fatty acids have omega-3 fatty acid deficiencies. It just doesn't absorb. Uh, well, it just doesn't convert to absorb appropriately. And you know, vegetarians and, and uh, vegans have been shown to have massive inflammation. Uh, I, I know this is contrary to their claims, but they often have massive inflammation problems. And part of that could be because of their supplementing with flaxseed oil that cannot convert into usable omega-3 fatty acids. And then they're, they're just as dangerous at being oxidized and becoming toxic. Um, there, and there's other reasons they have high, high reactive oxygen species in their system, but th that could play a part. Um, and it could definitely play a part in why they have, uh, for weight matched vegetarians and vegans, they have all the same diseases as people eating meat. And, and so this is weight matched lifestyle match. So exact same lifestyles, they have all the same diseases, except they have a higher risk of stroke, which could directly be related to um, their diet because the omega-3s in an environment where they don't have adequate B12 consumption can be highly devastating to uh, arterial tissue. So omega-3s go for any type of fish or aquatic source, even algae, stay away from flaxseed. Plus, I, I mean, I'm glad to hear that because I used to try to, I was glad to learn that because I used to try to eat flaxseed oil and I mean, that stuff just to this day, the smell of it makes me want to vomit. Uh, let's see. 
protein intake. I, I'm still around the a one gram per pound of body weight. Um, this is from Maurice uh, Dollar again. Uh, I around one gram per pound of body weight is is really good if you have athletic goals. If you don't have athletic goals, then some around somewhere around 0.6 grams per pound of body weight uh, is going to be pretty ideal. Uh, fat to protein ratios. Like I don't want to comment on that because it actually can swing wildly. It it doesn't matter. And I made those original recommendations when all the data pointed to insulin being a very important factor in fat gain. And now that I know that insulin is a is a less it insulin enters into the equation in a different way. So then your fat protein ratio actually doesn't matter. What you need to do is make sure that you're getting adequate protein and you're getting enough fat to meet your energy needs and that varies wildly across people because some of your fat comes from your body fat tissue but your body fat tissue can only release a certain amount of fat every day so you need to know both your body fat tissue and how much it can release every day before you can estimate how much fat you would eat and and again that's why i made body ai because i i can't do that for well I mean, I could do that for everybody, uh, but it, it's time-consuming. I have to know your fat mass. It's just, you know, of course it makes more sense to automate it. And the protein-fat ratio at that point doesn't matter at all. It's it's almost non-consequential. Um, so more fitness asked about carbonate and carb backloading. Um, have my views on them ever wavered? Well, that's an interesting question. I personally in my life uh, i've really adopted this scientific ethos on how i live and it has a lot of consequences and everything i do is informed by that even including constructing those diets i always constructed the diets with the best information available now if you're honestly doing that and you're not trying to just promote an agenda each new batch of information should help you refine your original work. You know, if it doesn't, then that means you really screwed up or the body works or, or your theory is going to explain why you were misled by all of that previous information. And that, and that can happen and that's fine. But I was in a situation, luckily thus far, Carb Night was pretty dead on conceptually with the science and, and and again I used the science to build the diet I didn't have a preconceived notion that I was trying to defend with research and I guarantee you 99.99% of any health or diet guru out there I don't care how famous they are or how successful or how scientific they try to be or appear to be or pretend to be they're all doing ad hoc assessment and I actually got stuck roped into that mindset for a short period of time um, and I caught it and realized what I was doing and stepped back from that um, you cannot do that your theory needs to be based in a way that it explains massive amounts of phenomena um, and as you move on it should be refined and if it's not refined if you have some completely new information that makes you go in a completely different direction you have to explain why your previous principles still worked. 
And you'll see this dichotomy in the old school paleo world who've shifted to ketogenic. Like they're like, so explain to me why paleo worked if you need to go ketogenic. Ketogenic was known, it explained a lot. Explain to me what that scientific evolution was. And, and the problem is they don't have one. It's just, it was trendy. Paleo was trendy, uh, gluten was trendy, and food toxins are still, are still trendy. Uh, well, and then ketogenic got trendy. It's like, oh crap. Well, all right. Well, ketogenic's the way to go. It's like, well, what was your scientific progression? Because no science that I ever heard quoted for paleo for their dietary recommendations fits with keto. Other than if you're eating, if you're eating keto, you're probably not eating any vegetables. So you have no food toxicity. And that's a really crappy theory. Like, I just got to tell you, that's just, a crappy theory it's good logic but it's a crap scientific theory because it explains so little uh like why do people who are on long-term ketogenic diets start to gain weight again um i mean this is a, a ph phenomenon that's recorded over and over again and there's a reason for it and your theory should explain that reason um and you know there, there's all kinds of other stuff but so no has my belief in those diets ever wavered no uh, actually creating two separate diets, carbonate and carb backloading, made me realize that there was a deeper theory that I had to find. Um, and I spent copious amounts of time trying to find that theory. And it, as my book will lay out, my, my theory was a true theory. It was a true hypothesis. And not only did it explain what we saw, it actually made predictions of things I should see, I should see in data that weren't understood yet. Um, and I'll get into all that in the book, but it did actually make predictions and I had to dig around and see if I could find any data that people couldn't make sense of. And it turned out, I found a substantial, my, my theory made predictions that strangely enough, there was already enough data to confirm. Uh, so that's real science. So anybody else who says they're using science, um, in this arena, I'm not going to call them liars and I'm not going to say they're being fraudulent or that they're frauds. All I would say is that I would love to take the time to question them on their scientific process and the information that led them to their conclusions. Um, because I, I'm going to guess in the majority of cases, they won't be able to defend their construction of the diet. It'll be an ad hoc construction. They have an idea, they look for data to support that idea. End of story. Um, let's see. Oh, this is a big one. Um, Leiden Stoikov, uh, Mike. Uh, I'd love your thoughts on living, working out, keeping your health during stress, stress being either emotional, physical, or chemicals especially in dirty, dirty environments like cities. So it's kind of one of those crazy things. I don't think city scapes and the toxicities that they bring are actually that toxic. Um, there is some toxicity. I'm not saying that, but I, I don't think it's anything to worry about unless you're on a carbohydrate based diet. And it's, it's interesting because everything goes out the window once you start asking questions about health in regards to a diet without carbohydrates. Like it's a whole new ball game. 
none of our measures mean the same thing anymore. Cholesterol measures, um, correlations with toxicity in the environment, cancer, carcinogens, like all of those correlations start to break down and we have to understand why. Um, and again, my new book covers that, but in general, I don't worry about environmental toxins like in the area of air of a big city. Uh, water supply also, I mean, if it's a city water supply, I'm assuming that it's pretty healthy. I've never had any problems in any large city that I've traveled to uh, around the world so far with the with water. Um, and I emphasize big city water. Uh, the air quality, sure, if you have asthma, it's going to affect you. But the question is, why do you have asthma? Um, and stress... Again, things go out the window if you're not eating a carbohydrate-based diet. Stress is actually highly beneficial. Um, high levels of stress are only bad. Even chronic levels for quite some period are only destructive if you have carbs in the system and regular insulin spikes with the carbs. So the regular insulin spikes are not a huge issue. The insulin spikes with the carbs are the issue. Stress is actually really beneficial. And what the body is doing in a stress situation is it's trying to tune the internal environment to match your needs to cope with the external environment. Now, unfortunately, carbohydrates derail this significantly. They're an incredibly powerful drug in that sense. But if you don't have carbohydrates, then your body's stress levels will quickly readjust themselves because you're not interfering with it with carbohydrates anymore and the body and your stress hormones and stress responses will cause the body to adapt to better thrive in the external environment. So this is a really big misunderstanding about stress and a really big misunderstanding about cortisol and all of the research meets this out. Um, it's very clear. Stress is not bad. Uh, stress is your body's attempt to match the internal environment to the needs of the external environment so that you can once again thrive. But we derail that with medications. We derail that with hormones. We derail that with our diet. And those are the big issues around stress. So the way I eat and the way I've been eating for the last man, 26 years now, I just don't worry about it. Um, I mean, it, it can cause other problems because of the way I've eaten my, my low, low negative stress response. I have primarily a positive stress response at this point. Um, is, you know, your hunger regulates correctly at that point. And once it does, you your appetite matches your environment so while i was injured and bedridden i lost all appetite i just did not want to eat um, and this is also that this is very pertinent to the reason of why the the new uh, intuitive eating idea of dieting like cannot work for the vast majority of people it's a, it's basically and especially if you look at the people promoting this over the years, um, Kelsey, I can't remember her last name, she was one of the huge proponents of this, made it initially very popular. 
you can find pictures of her over the years because she gives lectures on health, which is amazing, and her body weight has continuously gained, increased, and specifically her body fat. I mean, you, it, it's obvious. I'm not just making a, a subjective judgment call. It's objectively true. Her body weight's been increasing ever since she's been been promoting intuitive eating. So that's got to make you question, is your intuition to make yourself sick? Like, is that your body's base intuition? Eh, that, that doesn't seem very likely to me. Um, so to, to be honest, I just don't worry about it. So this has gone on for an hour. I'm going to cut, I'm going to end this part of the pod of the question response now and then I'm going to re record a new set of answers. So I hope everybody finds this one helpful.